Hello, friends. I'm Alan Kirshner from Eschatos Ministries. As a Christian, you can't help but hear the news and watch the turmoil of our day and know that the return of Christ is nearing. Bible Prophecy Daily is committed to the daily feeding of God's people to make overcomers. But there is a material cost to this global outreach. Please consider committing to giving to Eschatos Ministries on a monthly basis. You can easily do so by clicking the support button in the corner at the podcast website at BibleProphecyDaily.com. We appreciate you and pray that God will bless and strengthen you. Thank you. You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. Hey guys, this is Travis Snow, and welcome to the podcast. In today's episode, I want to take another look at Isaiah chapter 7, and particularly the Emmanuel prophecy in Isaiah 7, which begins in Isaiah 7.14 with these words, Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. At least that's how most English Bibles translate this passage. And the reason I wanted to take a look at this text, there's actually a couple other verses we will cover in Isaiah 7 as well, but I wanted to take a look at this as a follow-up to a video I recorded and a podcast I did in December on the same topic. And basically, in that podcast, I defended the view that Emmanuel At the time this prophecy was given, Emmanuel was actually a child born in Isaiah's day who bore witness to the faithfulness of God to the house of David in the time of Isaiah in the 700s BC, a little bit over 700 years before the time of Christ. So I was arguing for a historical interpretation. And then when we looked at the Gospel of Matthew, which we'll do in this video as well, I was arguing that Matthew, when he quoted this passage and applied it to the life of Christ, he wasn't saying that the prophecy originally predicted the virgin birth of Christ per se. He was reading the the prophecy in Isaiah typologically. So he saw Emmanuel born in Isaiah's day as a type and foreshadowing of Christ, just like you see types of Christ in other places, like, for example, Melchizedek or King David could be a type of Christ. Moses is a type of Christ. So what I'm arguing, what I argued in that video and podcast, and I will argue in this uh, podcast and video as well, is for the, what I will call the historical typological view and interpretation of Isaiah 7. So I really want to go deep into the text. Now, we did that to an extent in the earlier uh, teaching that I made. However, and this is a big however, in that teaching, I wasn't able to fully respond to what I will call in this presentation, the messianic prophecy view, because I didn't want to get bogged down in a lot of polemics or responding to every single uh, alternative interpretation. That can take time, as you'll see in this uh 
teaching here. It, it can take some time to do. I think it's worth the time, but I wasn't able to do that. And so I know some people that I interacted with on social media and in other places, uh, my teaching raised some questions that maybe weren't answered because people were saying, well, I've heard, you know, this view before from people who say it's a messianic prophecy. What about this word virgin, which we'll get into? And there's other ideas that circulate as well among those who say that, no, uh, this was not a historical prophecy uh, pertinent to Isaiah's day primarily, um, it was it was a prophecy about the Messiah. So they're saying that's the messianic prophecy view. These people are saying that Isaiah 7:14 was a messianic prophecy and nothing else at the time it was given. And I really want to go deep into that view and respond to that view and explain why, in my opinion, I think it's wrong. And for me, this is not just an academic exercise, as I. Uh, shared in the earlier video, I genuinely believe that in order to understand the true significance and meaning of the virgin birth of Christ, we actually have to understand that the virgin birth was not directly predicted in the Old Testament or in Isaiah 7:14 in particular. So there's a little bit of an ironic paradox there. If you want to really understand, what Matthew is saying in his birth narrative and why he quotes Isaiah 7, you have to understand that Isaiah 7 originally wasn't about the virgin birth. So paradox there again. And I think if you can understand this, it will just open up a lot of other important lessons in the realm of biblical hermeneutics, which is biblical interpretation, how the New Testament authors use the Old Testament, um, Christian doctrine, areas related to Christian doctrine, evangelism, apologetics, things like that. So this is one of those issues that it has these kind of implications um, that go well beyond just kind of the narrow academic analysis of things. And that's why I wanted to kind of land here again and go into this in more detail. And I should also add, this will be a lengthy presentation. So what I'm going to do is break this up into a three-part series. So today will be part one, covering the first three points. Everything I'll cover, I also will have in a full-length exegetical article on my website, shilohmedia.org, and also on my Twitter. I'll post it there on my Twitter, at Travis M. Snow. So if you want to be able to read along and follow uh, kind of the the rationale and logic of the presentation, or if you learn better that way or want to complement with the written resource, I will make that available, as I promised to do in December, and I've just at the end of January here, I'm just getting uh, to the point where I finished this. So what I'll do is I'm going to go through what I call the 13 keys to the Emmanuel prophecy, the 13 keys to the Emmanuel prophecy. And so we'll go through 13 points, things to understand about this prophecy that help us interpret it the right way. And as I go along doing this, I will be making the case for what I will call the historical typological view or interpretation, and I will be fully responding to the messianic prophecy interpretation. So again, 
On one side, you have those like myself who say it's a historical prophecy that has deeper typological and Christological significance revealed in the New Testament. And then on the other side, you have people who say Isaiah 7.14 is a direct messianic prophecy about the virgin birth. And I think as you go through this, you'll see there are too many problems with that latter view. And, and I hope that this will kind of reinforce the accuracy, let's say, of the historical typological view. So with all that said, guys, uh, thank you for tuning in. We'll jump right in here now to point number one, key number one to the Emmanuel prophecy. Number one, the Emmanuel prophecy was given to Ahaz and the house of Judah in 734 BC. So Isaiah 7 places us actually in the midst of a war that was raging between Judah and her northern neighbors, particularly the kingdoms of Israel and Aram in the 8th century BC. And as we read the opening uh, lines in verses 1 through 2 of Isaiah 7, it says, Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. And when it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. At this time, the people of Jerusalem were living in fear so because of this war. So God then sends the prophet Isaiah to reassure Ahaz, the king of Judah, that the city would not be conquered by their enemies, Israel and Aram. This is taking place during the time of the divided kingdom. And as the two men, Isaiah and Ahaz, conversate, Isaiah initially tells Ahaz that he can choose any sign from God that he wants in order to verify this promise of divine protection. And that's in Isaiah 7, 10 through 12. But when Ahaz refuses in a show of false piety, no doubt, Isaiah then delivers the famous Emmanuel prophecy. So this is Isaiah 7, 14 to 16. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin, or we could translate it young maiden, as we'll see, will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Now, to establish the historical typological view, we will have to delve deeper into the finer details of this prophecy itself. But just from the outset here, we can already see that the historical setting of these verses strongly favors the idea that Emmanuel was a child born in Isaiah's day probably right around 734 BC, whose birth, discussed in 714, and early diet, discussed in 715, would signify the impending defeat of the two kings of Israel and Aram, which is discussed in 716. Moreover, we know from historical sources that the Assyrian army, led initially by Tiglath-Pileser, did in fact wage war against the northern kingdoms of Israel and Aram, within a year or so after the Emmanuel prophecy was delivered. 
and Tiglath-Pileser soundly defeated them within two years, right around 733 to 732 BC. So with this historical background in mind, I could argue that it would make little sense if the promised child of Isaiah 714 was not actually born in the days of Ahaz, because if this were the case, the people, that is Ahaz and his household, promised the sign of deliverance would never have seen it. In other words, it simply does not suit the context of the oracle to maintain that Isaiah 714 is only a direct messianic prophecy about the birth of Jesus and nothing else, because Emmanuel was meant to function as a sign of God's faithfulness to Ahaz and the Davidic household in their day. This implies, as we'll continue to see throughout this study, that Emmanuel must have been born at the time, at a time when Ahaz was still alive, not 700 years later, as was the case with Jesus. In the words of Old Testament scholar John Oswalt, who has written one of the best conservative evangelical commentaries on Isaiah, to suppose that the sign did not occur in any sense until 725 years after the fact flies in the face of the plain sense of the text. So Oswalt recognizing there that the historical context favors the idea that Emmanuel was originally a child born in Isaiah's day. And we'll, again, look at some claims to the contrary a little bit later, but I just wanted to establish us in the historical context first, which my other video and podcast on this subject went into more detail on. But now I want to move into some of the other more granular uh, details and issues I wasn't able to cover before, which brings us to point number two or key number two. And that is the use of the Hebrew word alma in Isaiah 7.14, which is the word that's often translated virgin, Alma in Isaiah 7.14 does not require a virgin birth. And it's often been said that the Hebrew word Alma in Isaiah 7.14 is the most controversial and commented upon word in the entire Old Testament. And this is perhaps true. But as we'll see in the rest of this section, there is no evidence that the Hebrew word Alma must indicate a supernatural virgin birth rather than birth through natural means in the 700s BC. And those who claim otherwise have read far too much into the text on this point. So let's look at the view that Alma means virgin. So those who favor the Messianic prophecy view not only argue that Alma means virgin, but they argue that the Old Testament usage of this term proves that Alma means virgin. And so then they move from there to the idea that Isaiah 7.14 is nothing other than a direct prediction of the virgin birth of Jesus. And many within this camp will also concede that in some cases, Alma carries a, quote, indeterminate or neutral sense. But nevertheless, they still hold to the belief that a few indeterminate use cases in the Old Testament do not overturn the weight of evidence supporting a direct connection between the word Alma and virginity. For example, in his book, The Messianic Hope, uh, which I highly recommend, it's a great book, even though I, I disagree with the author on this point, biblical scholar Michael Rydelnik offers one of the best presentations of the argument that Isaiah 7.14 is a direct Messianic prophecy. In this study, after Rydelnik surveys the use of Alma in the Old Testament, he concludes, in every usage in the Hebrew Bible, the word Alma either refers to a virgin or has a neutral sense. And then he says, so there does not seem to be cause to abandon 
the traditional interpretation of Alma as a virgin, except for an anti-supernatural or anti-messianic bias. And similarly, in his widely regarded commentary on Isaiah, Old Testament scholar Alec Motyer writes, Thus, wherever the context allows a judgment, Alma is not a general term meaning young woman, but a specific one meaning virgin. Isaiah used the word which, according or among those available to him, came nearest to expressing virgin birth, and which, without linguistic impropriety, opens the door to such a meaning. So they're just saying that Alma means virgin, and it couldn't mean anything else, and so this had to be about the virgin birth. Now let's look at the root meaning of Alma. Despite these claims to the contrary from proponents of the Messianic prophecy view, there is not really any evidence in the Bible that the word Alma carries the primary connotation of virginity. And this is why, apart from a few holdouts in evangelical circles, there are no Hebrew language scholars today who favor the translation virgin in Isaiah 7.14. To understand why this is the case, we must start with the root word from which Alma is derived. In the words of Old Testament scholar Brevard Childs, there is now almost unanimous consensus that the root of Alma means to be full of vigor or to have reached the age of puberty. Thus, according to Childs, the noun refers to a female sexually ripe for marriage. The emphasis does not fall on virginity as such, and consequently the English translation virgin is misleading and too narrowly focusing on virginity rather than on sexual maturity. So that's a very important point there, that it's not about sexual status, it's about age and stage of life, and these are not the same thing. In the same vein, Old Testament scholar Hans Wildberger notes, the main point of the term is not that she is a virgin. The basic meaning of the root is apparently strong, marriageable, fully developed for sexual activity. So to summarize, Anama was a young woman who had just reached the age of puberty and the point when marriage and childbearing became possible and normative in the ancient world. It is true, as we will see, that Anama was often an unmarried virgin by virtue of the fact that young women at this stage of life were usually not yet engaged in intercourse in the ancient world. However, contrary to the view of those who believe Alma and Isaiah 7.14 should be translated virgin, this does not imply that the primary nuance communicated through the term had to do with virginity or singleness. And this is a critical point to grasp. When doing interpretation, you have to look at the primary nuance and meaning of a term, not just secondary characteristics or associations. So to briefly elaborate, that an Alma was often a virgin does not mean that the term means virgin any more than the term toddler today means virgin just because toddlers are still in a state of sexual innocence. The nuance of the Hebrew term Alma, like the modern English toddler, has to do with age, not sexual status. And of course, I understand that the terms Alma and toddler do not represent the same stage of life. So at a certain point, the analogy breaks down. But the simple point here is that translation and interpretation should be driven by the primary connotation of a word, not by peripheral characteristics that are not directly related to the term's root meaning. To give another example, just because trees typically have leaves does not mean the word tree is a synonym for the word leaves. And likewise, just because an alma was often a virgin does not mean alma and virgin are synonymous. 
In my studies, I would say that this confusion over the word Alma is probably the primary weakness of the Messianic prophecy view. Proponents of the Messianic prophecy view consistently miss the distinction between a word's core meaning and secondary characteristics, which unfortunately has led to unnecessary confusion over the best interpretation of the Emmanuel prophecy. Thankfully, however, the consensus of scholarship has now moved away from the translation virgin in Isaiah 7.14. This is why Childs writes that maiden is the best translation of Alma, whereas Wildberger writes, scholarly research has thus, generally speaking, given up on the translation virgin because it causes one to be mentally ready for an interpretation that is not forthcoming. One ought to stay with the translation young woman. So, Childs chooses maiden, Wildberger chooses young woman, and what Wildberger is saying there is that translating Alma as virgin in Isaiah 7.14 predisposes people to read something into the text that's not there. They, it predisposes Christians to read this as a direct prophecy about the virgin birth of Christ when such an interpretation is, in his words, not forthcoming or supported by the text. Personally, therefore, I split the difference between young woman and maiden and choose young maiden as the best translation of Alma in Isaiah 7.14 because this combination of words emphasizes the age, stage of life, and in some respects purity and innocence associated with the term without stretching it to the point that it must carry strong connotations of virginity and singleness in every case. Okay, now let's look at the use of Alma in the Old Testament. That Alma should be translated young maiden and not virgin in Isaiah 7.14 is proven not only by the word's root meaning, but also by how it is used in the Old Testament. Outside of Isaiah 7.14, Alma is used only seven other times in the Hebrew Bible, and in none of these cases does the word itself directly connote virginity. Instead, it implies the age of a young woman, and just as important, In cases where the virginity of such a young woman is also highlighted, this is done through other language and context clues, not through the term Amma itself, because again, the term Amma by itself does not mean virgin. In Genesis 24-43, for example, Rebekah, the fiancé of Isaac, is called an Amma. Earlier in the same passage, Rebekah is also called a Betulah. Betulah and its derivatives are the most common words that denote a virgin or virginity in the Hebrew Bible. And because of this, advocates of the Messianic prophecy view often seize upon the parallel usage of Alma and Betulah in Genesis 24 as though this parallel proves that Alma means young virgin. But this is mere confirmation bias. A better way of looking at this parallel usage of Alma and Betulah is that Betulah had to be used in Genesis 24 to clarify that Rebekah was in fact a virgin because as stated earlier, the word Alma alone does not communicate virginity or married status per se. It primarily communicates age. So again, there had to be other context clues clarifying when an Alma was a virgin because the word itself doesn't mean virgin. So strictly speaking, we know Rebekah was a virgin not because she is called an Alma, but because she is called a Betulah, and because the text clearly states in Genesis 24:16, no man had known her. These were the context clues that were necessary to clarify the virginity of Rebekah at the time Isaac became engaged to her. 
Moreover, in context, Isaac does not describe Rebekah as an Alma when he is discussing her sexual status, as is the case in 2416. Instead, he describes Rebekah as an Alma when he is discussing the type of young woman he was looking for at the well, which confirms that he was using Alma to denote the age of a young maiden who could potentially be his wife because age can be visually recognized, whereas sexual status cannot. Genesis 24 is a perfect example of how it is only other context clues in a text, not the word Alma itself, that can clarify whether an Alma in question is a virgin or whether the term is in some way connected to virginity in a given passage. No doubt Rebecca was a virgin when Isaac became engaged to her. No one, no one's denying that. But we know this not because he calls her an Alma. We know this only because other language in the narrative clearly indicates that this was the case. Likewise, in Song of Songs 1-3 and 6-8, the alamot, which is the plural form of alma, are women who seek the love of the king. And in these verses, these alamot are contrasted with queens and concubines. Because the passage tells us that these alamot are distinct from the queens and concubines, it is probably a safe bet that they are, in fact, virgins. But again, just like in Genesis 24, the virginity of these alamot is conveyed, or maybe even at best implied, through the entire context of the passage, not merely through the use of the word alma. The other use cases of alma in the Hebrew Bible, however, including Exodus 2.8, Psalm 68.25, Psalm 46.1, 1 Chronicles 15.20 and Proverbs 30.19 do not connect the word Alma to virginity at all. We can probably assume that Miriam was an unmarried virgin at the time described in Exodus 2.8. Actually, I'm pretty sure we could be positive of that. But this does not mean Alma carries the primary connotation of virginity in this context. Rather, it simply implies that Miriam was a young woman. And even more to the point, the translation virgin would be completely out of place, awkward, and unjustifiable in Exodus 2.8, which is why every major English Bible, without exception, translates Alma here as girl, NASB, ESV, NIV, maid, KJV, or maiden, NKJV, a pattern that should also make us wonder why a similar approach is not followed in Isaiah 7.14. In other words, if you translate Alma as girl or maid or maiden or something similar in Exodus 2.8, when there's no context clues related to virginity, why aren't you following the same consistent pattern in Isaiah 7.14 when it's just used as a general term? So if you want to understand how strange it is to insist on the translation virgin in Isaiah 7.14, just try substituting the word virgin for Alma in Exodus 2.8. And you will see the extent to which such a translation does not work. It just does not make sense. Exodus 2.8 proves that the term Alma in and of itself does not carry a direct connotation of sexual status, but merely denotes age, a fact that is reflected in nearly all English Bible translations. Similarly, the use of alamot in musical context in Psalms 68.25, Psalms 46.1, and 1 Chronicles 15.20 has nothing to do with virginity. In these cases, alamot probably refers to a group of young women who were often found in choirs and musical processions. And like with the other examples, 
that many of these young maidens were undoubtedly virgins is irrelevant because nothing in the context implies that their sexual status is in view through the use of the term Alma. Finally, and perhaps most importantly of all, Proverbs 30.19 likely describes a young woman as an Alma who is sexually active and possibly even married. In this verse, Solomon speaks of four wonderful things that were too amazing for him to understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the middle of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid, Alma. The most likely topic of discussion at the end of Proverbs 31 is the wonders of sexual union between a newly married young woman, Alma, and her husband, or at the very least, the wonders of sexual union between two young lovers. If this is the case, and it most probably is, then Proverbs 30.19 would provide an example in which an Alma is clearly not a virgin, but is rather a young maiden who has just reached the point of sexual maturity and begun to experience, in Solomon's words, the wonders of her sexuality, presumably with her new husband. Admittedly, the details in Proverbs 30.19 are vague, and not surprisingly, proponents of the Messianic prophecy view have sought to explain away the idea that this verse refers to a sexually active young woman, in large part because accepting such an idea would undercut their argument that an Alma is always an unmarried virgin. Thus, Rydelnik, for example, finds in Proverbs 30.19 only a reference to general attraction, not sexual relations, meaning he views Proverbs 30.19 as another reference to a virgin, but in this case, a virgin being wooed by a young man. But this idea that sexual union is not in view in Proverbs 30.19 is almost impossible to defend. After all, just think about this logically. Is it more likely that Solomon is saying in this verse that young teenagers flirting is too wonderful for him to understand? or that he is saying the bliss of young love and sexual union at the peak of life is too wonderful for him to understand. My money is on the latter, and many commentaries reflect this view. For example, in the words of Wildberger, Proverbs 30, 19 could very well include the idea that this is a married woman, Alma, or at the very least, an Alma who is sexually active. And I won't go into uh, too much detail on this point, but Wildberger has also presented evidence from other languages similar to Biblical Hebrew, where an Alma was often um, designating a married woman or the wife of a king. So there, there's evidence even outside the Bible that an Alma did not always have to be an unmarried young virgin. Again, it's, it's about the age of a woman who has just reached sexual maturity. And once you understand how Proverbs 30.19 likely describes a sexually active young Alma, it's easier to understand why this word is also used in Isaiah 7.14, because Isaiah 7.14 refers to the same type of young woman that we also find in Proverbs 30.19, one who had just reached the point of sexual maturity, was having or would soon have intercourse for the first time, presumably with her husband, which would naturally lead to conception and the birth of her son, Emmanuel. In either case, however, we should be clear here that the interpretation of Alma in Isaiah 7.14 is not dependent entirely on whether or not Proverbs 30.19 describes a sexually active young woman, even though it almost certainly does. Proverbs 30.19 likely bolsters the argument that Isaiah 7.14 refers to a natural rather than virgin birth because it probably gives us a use case in the Old Testament in which an Alma is engaged in intercourse, 
But regardless of how one interprets Proverbs 30.19, it does not diminish the overwhelming evidence throughout Scripture that the word Alma by itself denotes age and not sexual status. This is clear in many passages, and most especially in Genesis 24.43, Exodus 2.8, Proverbs 30.19, and the various texts that speak of Alamot in musical settings. In summary, in terms of the meaning of Alma, it is understandable that many Christian scholars have sought to justify the belief that Isaiah 7.14 is a direct messianic prophecy about the virgin birth of Christ, and that the word Alma in this verse should be translated virgin. After all, no one who believes in Jesus wants to undermine or be seen as undermining a core tenet of Christian orthodoxy, namely the virgin birth, which is a concern I also share. Later, we will look at the use of Isaiah 7.14 in the Gospel of Matthew, and in that context, we will see that a historical as opposed to messianic reading of Isaiah 7.14, does not undermine the Christian doctrine of the virgin birth, but instead bolsters and clarifies its significance. For now, since we are concerned first and foremost with the meaning of Isaiah 7.14 in its original historical context, we have sought to understand how the word Alma would have been understood by Isaiah's original audience. This study has revealed that although an Alma was often a virgin, neither the root meaning of the word, sexually strong, or its usage throughout the Hebrew Bible justifies the translation virgin in Isaiah 7.14. In numerous cases, Alma is used as a general term for a young woman, girl, or maiden, like in Exodus 2.8 and Psalm 68.25. In one case, Alma likely refers to a sexually active and possibly even married woman, Proverbs 30.19. And in cases where the virginity of an Alma is emphasized in some way, Genesis 24.43, Song of Songs 1.3 and 6.8, this is made clear through other words and context clues, not merely through the use of the term Alma. Therefore, because there are no such clarifying terms or context clues in Isaiah 7.14 that indicate a supernatural virgin birth, we should not read beyond the baseline meaning of the term Alma when interpreting this passage. Proponents of the Messianic prophecy view often present the evidence on Alma as though we have dozens of use cases where Alma means young virgin and nothing else, or as though we have ample evidence that the main connotation of Alma relates to virginity rather than stage of life. Given the evidence available to us, this is puzzling and misleading to say the least. Moreover, it is an unfortunate example of how theological bias no matter how well-intentioned, often drives the interpretive process more than exegesis. So what's happening here is people are thinking in terms of, well, my Christian tradition tells me Isaiah 7.14 is a direct prophecy about the virgin birth of Jesus, so my job is to shoehorn the evidence on Alma to make it fit the tradition. But that's just simply not a good way of doing biblical exegesis. Isaiah 7.14 did not refer to a virgin birth at the time the prophecy was given. Rather, the text should simply be translated, Behold, the young maiden will conceive and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. In his excellent article on Isaiah 7, Old Testament scholar James Hamilton comments on what is and is not conveyed by the term Alma, and also summarizes how the birth of Emmanuel fit within the historical context of Isaiah's day. He writes, Thus, it seems that in the context of Isaiah 7-8, through 8, the promise of the birth of a child who will be named Emmanuel is a sign that guarantees God's promise that the plan concocted by Syria and Israel to dethrone Ahaz 
and replace him with one they can control will not stand. God's people were threatened and uncertain. God promised through Isaiah that they would be delivered from these circumstances. And the promise of deliverance was guaranteed by the birth of a child. This child would be born to a mother who could have been a virgin when the promise was made, or perhaps she was simply a young woman of marriageable age. But there is no indication in the text that this woman would not conceive through intercourse with a man. Point or key number three. The Greek Septuagint translation of Isaiah 7.14 does not require a virgin birth in Isaiah's day. Another common argument put forth by those who believe Isaiah 7.14 referred to a virgin birth in its original historical context centers around the translation of Alma in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that dates to the intertestamental period, circa 200 BC, and it translates Alma in Isaiah 7.14 with the Greek word Parthenos. Today, one is likely to hear that Parthenos means virgin and nothing else, which if true would mean that many Jewish commentators during this time, because Greek-speaking Jews created the Septuagint at least 100 years before the time of Christ, believed Isaiah 7.14 is in some way focused on the virginity of the young woman. As we saw with Alma, however, this line of reasoning concerning Parthenos is flawed and overly simplistic, to say the least. It is true that Parthenos often translates the Hebrew word Betulah in the Septuagint, and as mentioned earlier, Betulah is the most common word in the Old Testament that communicates virginity. This association between Parthenos and Betulah, however, does not mean that Parthenos in an Old Testament context must always mean virgin. And we know this to be the case because out of the 52 times Parthenos is used in the Septuagint, in a number of cases it translates the Hebrew word na'ara, which is a general term for a young girl, and which is a term that carries no direct connotation of virginity whatsoever. So for example, Parthenos is used six times in Genesis, and in four of these use cases, Parthenos translates na'ara, young girl. Additionally, there is then one place each in Genesis where Parthenos translates Betulah, virgin, and Alma, young maiden. Of these use cases, Genesis 34.3 is particularly important because in this verse, Jacob's daughter Dina is called a Parthenos after she is raped by Shechem, meaning in this case, Parthenos is used to describe a young woman who is technically not a virgin. Furthermore, in Genesis 24.14, the Septuagint uses Parthenos to refer to young women, Hebrew na'arot, in a general sense, whom Isaac might meet at the well without any focus on their sexual status. Now, in the majority of other cases in the Septuagint, Parthenos does designate a virgin, Betulah, and this should not be denied. However, as we saw with Alma, the pertinent issue here is not whether Parthenos could refer to a virgin, because it definitely can and often does even more so than the word Alma, actually. But still, the core issue is whether the word Parthenos itself, without any other context clues indicating virginity, always means a virgin in the Greek Septuagint. When we look at the issue from this perspective, we find that the diverse ways in which Parthenos is used in the Septuagint does not justify the belief that a Parthenos was always a virgin, or that the word itself primarily connotes virginity in an Old Testament context. 
rather like Alma, Parthenos and the Septuagint can be used to describe various types of young women on the threshold of puberty, marriage, and childbearing. As far as Isaiah 7.14 is concerned, therefore, the word Parthenos and the Septuagint rendition of this verse does nothing to bolster the Messianic prophecy view. The Septuagint's use of Parthenos in Isaiah 7.14 accords with the idea that Isaiah was speaking of a young maiden girl who was about to conceive and bear a son. Because there are no other context clues or phraseology that indicate an actual virgin birth in this verse, from a strictly historical perspective, if we are trying to understand how Isaiah's original audience would have heard this prophecy, nothing more than childbirth to a young mother, childbirth through natural means, I should add, to a young mother, can be deduced from Isaiah 7.14. And this view is supported even after we study in depth the meaning of Alma in the Hebrew text and Parthenos in the Greek translation, aka the Septuagint. Point number four. Isaiah 7 uses Old Testament language linked to natural childbirth and name-giving. More confirmation that Isaiah 7.14, in its original historical context, referred only to childbirth through natural means, can be found when we consider the other language used to describe the birth of Emmanuel. So again, this is where we want to rely on context clues that give a fuller picture and not only look at individual words themselves, which is a common fallacy in interpretation. So the end of verse 14, Isaiah 7:14, states that the young maiden will conceive, hara, and bear a son, yalad, and call, kara, his name, Emmanuel. Though this point is never acknowledged by those who argue that Isaiah 7:14 refers to a virgin birth, the three verbs used at the end of this verse, conceive, hara, bear, yalad, and call, kara, are often used together in the Old Testament to denote natural childbirth. Actually, these words constitute a kind of standard and even formulaic expression that would never have been viewed by Isaiah's Hebrew-speaking audience as depicting a miraculous birth. Instead, these were simply the terms that Hebrew speakers use to describe conception via intercourse, the process of giving birth, and the subsequent naming of a child. This type of language is used dozens of times in the Hebrew Bible to designate natural childbirth, and further proof of this can even be found in the very next chapter of Isaiah, in Isaiah 8.3. In this verse, Isaiah describes the birth of one of his sons in the following way. So I approached the prophetess, and she conceived, hara, and gave birth, yalad, to a son. Then the Lord said to me, name, karahim, maher shalal hashbaz. Soon we will address the relationship between the child Emmanuel in chapter 7 and the son of Isaiah referenced in chapter 8. At present, however, we only need to note that in Isaiah 8.3, Isaiah uses the same three verbs to describe the birth of his own son that we also find in Isaiah 7.14. And there is never any claim made by anyone that Isaiah is describing a supernatural birth here. Thus, for the sake of interpretive consistency, if we read Isaiah 8.3 as an account of natural childbirth, along with all of the other passages that use identical language, we should read Isaiah 7.14 in the same way as well, as a passage about natural childbirth. Otherwise, we are in effect arguing that the same language in two parallel passages means completely different things, i.e. a supernatural birth in 7.14, but a natural birth in 8.3 and elsewhere. Such an approach to interpretation 
is inconsistent, contradictory, and untenable to say the least. Of course, I do understand that proponents of the Messianic prophecy view will argue that the miraculous nature of the birth in Isaiah 7.14, in contrast to what we find in 8.3, is communicated primarily through the term Alma, and also through the fact that this birth is called a sign, not through the other verbs used to describe Emmanuel's birth. We will address the sign aspect of this argument soon. However, with regards to the word Alma, we have already seen that the term Alma on its own does not specifically connote virginity. Rather, again, it indicates stage of life. And consequently, when we look at the terms and context clues that we are given in Isaiah 7.14, it becomes clear that nothing more than natural childbirth is in view. If the case were otherwise, Isaiah would have been required to use other language that clearly indicates a supernatural birth. He would not have left the issue so ambiguous and vague by using common everyday language for natural childbirth. And on that note, some have argued that if Isaiah intended to specify a virgin birth in Isaiah 7.14, he would have used the Hebrew word betulah, not alma, because as noted earlier, betulah is the clear choice for virgin in the Hebrew Bible. This argument may be partially true, though partially overstated. It would be more accurate to say that there were many ways that Isaiah could have indicated a virgin birth, only one of which would have been to clarify with a term like betulah, which does usually mean virgin in the Old Testament. So Isaiah could have used a term, a clarifying term like betulah, to indicate a young woman still in a state of virginity, but he could have also used a phrase to indicate that the alma, or the young maiden, had never known a man, because this is another very common phrase that occurs frequently in the Bible to indicate virginity. And you see this everywhere, you know, so-and-so, she had never been with the man, she had never lain with the man. So again, the point here is that Isaiah could have specified a virgin birth in so many different ways. And we can reasonably assume that if something as miraculous as a virgin birth was on his mind in the original historical context, then he would not have left the issue vague. He would not have just used the word Alma and, and said nothing else about a woman being in a state of virginity or a woman who had never known a man. He, he would have said something like that if he was talking about a virgin birth. And yet he does not. He does not do this. In Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah uses common and even formulaic language connected to natural childbirth and naming particularly the three verbs in sequence, hara, conceive, yalad, bear or give birth, and kara, call or name. And there is no evidence anywhere in the Bible that these verbs, without clear language indicating otherwise, could depict a supernatural birth without intercourse. Point five, or key number five. Isaiah 7.14 refers to an unidentified young maiden who lived in the 700s B.C., and actually named her son Emmanuel. Once we understand that Isaiah 7.14 refers to a woman and child who lived in the 8th century BC, the next question that arises is, who were they? Scholars who accept the historical typological view are divided on this question, but generally fall into one of four main camps, which can be summarized as follows. One, the young maiden was the wife of Ahaz, and the name given to their son, Emmanuel, was another name for their next offspring, King Hezekiah. Two, the young maiden was Isaiah's wife, and Emmanuel was actually Isaiah's son, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, who was mentioned later in Isaiah 8.3. Three, the young maiden and her son were not individuals, but were collective representatives 
of all pregnant women and their children who were born in the midst of the calamitous events taking place in 734 BC. All right, well, that takes us through the first three points, and we will pick up with point number four on the next episode. Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. 